Jesse, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing okay. I have a, a disturbing allegation that's been leveled at you, actually. Oh, shit. What? I'm looking at a cached version of a since-deleted article from Jew School, uh, a site <laughs> I read daily. I, I Religiously, no pun intended. Uh, the article starts by lumping you in with Barry Weiss, who is a monster, Bacha Ungar Sargon of um, Newsweek, also a monster. Then it says... Clearly, we need to talk about the role of assimilation on white Jewish women. <laughs> Mazel tov. I, are, are your Muslim friends going to be mad? Are you an infidel now? Yes, this is very funny. Uh, this, let's see this piece. This is funny. You said that you had a way to start the show. Uh, this was also how I was going to start the show. <laughs> so this is by a guy named Noah Strauss, who I'm not familiar with. According to his little bio here, he's a community organizer, accessibility advocate, Jewish educator, and journalist. And this journalist wrote this entire piece about about white Jewish women uh, and he, and like our, our race, um, and I say our because he also included me as one of these white yeah. Jewish women. Yeah, I, I had this one particular bit in mind. Uh, okay, so clearly we need to talk about the role of assimilation on white Jewish women and their hunger for supremacy. Are you hungry, Haiti? I am always hungry. <laughs> Newspapers have always played a role in lynchings. These Jewish women, again, this is including you, knowingly play the role of summoning white mobs to lynch black and brown women's voices. You are voices. literally lynching their voices, Katie. Yes, let me apologize on behalf of my fellow Jewish women, me and Barry and Batya. I apologize for continually lynching black and brown women's voices. I try not to be earnest on Twitter, but I was like fucking outraged by this. And I, I ended up mentioning two of the editors of the site to compare Anything any of the three of you have written with lynching is so fucking sick. And that's why they, that's of course why they scrubbed it, I would imagine, other than the fact that they thought you were Jewish just because everyone thinks you're Jewish. But I don't, I don't even know what to say about someone like that. It's so dumb. Yeah, it's really funny. There's a, there's a couple of other parts here I want to read. As Jews, we need to take an active stance and not publishing these women in Jewish mag magazines and centering them. <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen to your career if you weren't published in Jewish magazines? We need to stop these editors from pitting us against black and brown women. Otherwise, it isolates us as a community and turns Jews away from progressive moments. Not only am I not Jewish, I'm Muslim, and I'm not an editor. This is the weirdest I, I, it's like this stuff is produced by a poorly programmed AI at this point. Yeah. And so, uh, unfortunately, this has been taken down from their site. They didn't post any sort of correction or anything. But if you go to it now, there's just a, a 404 error. Katie, what is the name of this podcast that is complicit in rhetorical violence? This is the 100% Jewish podcast, Blocked and Reported. And I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single. And Katie... Let's talk about tea. Let's talk about tea. Well, how are your levels today? <laughs> Low as always. How about you? Through the Low roof? Always. Through the roof. Uh, all right. So there's been this interesting unfolding situation involving a woman named Carol Hooven. She's a friend of the podcast, and she is a lecturer at Harvard in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. She has a book out called Tea, the Story of Testosterone, the, the Hormone that Dominates and Divides Us. Uh, and she's gotten into a little bit of an online kerfuffle, and it 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 sort of hits many of our areas of interest. Um, so we basically just decided to have her on and to talk about what happened. Is there any other background info you think we should give before we throw to the interview, Katie? Yeah. So basically what happened is that uh, I wrote this piece. We mentioned it on the Patreon last week about uh, for Barry Weiss's newsletter about this trend in medicine in which medical schools – are or instructors at medical schools are basically avoiding talking about biological sex because if they talk about biological sex, their students will complain because they perceive it as transphobic or cis normative or too binary or an array of other complaints. Um, so Carol, I quoted Carol in the piece and she was invited on Fox News to talk about it. And that's where this whole thing starts. So we're going to play a clip from her interview now. This kind of ideology has been infiltrating science. It's infiltrating my classroom to some extent. I teach about hormones and behavior. I teach about sex and sex differences. And that's something I've always been really enthusiastic about is the science of sex and sex differences. And part of that science is teaching the facts. And the facts are that there are in fact two sexes. There are male and female. 
And those sexes are designated by the kind of gametes we produce. Like, do we make eggs, you know, big sex cells or little sex cells, sperm? And that's how we know whether somebody is male or female. And uh, the ideology seems to be that biology really isn't as important, important as how somebody feels about themselves or feels uh, their sex to be. But, you know, we can treat people with respect and respect their gender identities and, you know, use their preferred pronouns. So understanding the right. facts about biology doesn't prevent us from well, you really can do treating that. people with respect. But we can't back out of saying words like... So that was Carol Hooven on Fox News. And let's jump to the interview. Carol Hooven, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I feel like I owe you a little bit of an apology because I sort of got you into this yep. situation. You definitely do. <laughs> All right. This is my official blocked and reported apology. I'm sorry. Thank you, Katie. You also might have done me a little favor here and there. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about why you decided to go on Fox News. That Surely that must have taken, you know, some thought. So I went on Fox News because I was quoted in the article that you wrote for um, Barry Weiss's Substack piece about what is going on in uh, medical schools around the education uh, around reproductive biology and the language and the concepts that are now acceptable and the kind of pushback from people about using what I consider to be scientifically correct terms. So uh, I thought it would have made sense for you to go on Fox News, but since you were <laughs> not going to go on Fox News and they had asked me to go on kind of late the night uh, before I was supposed to be on, and I just uh, had a book come out in... July and I want to promote my book and I want my ideas to get out to as many people as possible, especially Fox News viewers. Uh, so I have no problem with appearing on Fox News and spreading the good word about science and about my book. So uh, that's why I decided to go on. I mean, it's a it's a rational position to take, as uh, as Michael Jordan said. Republicans <laughs> buy books about testosterone too. <laughs> Famous quote. <laughs> Famous quote. But there is also – you. I mean, I'm sure you're aware there's always going to be some people who just by virtue of the fact that you're appearing on Fox News, that in itself is deeply problematic. Yeah, and I think they're wrong. <laughs> isn't that isn't that a little bit violent to say they're wrong? <laughs> I think I have done physical violence to those you people. Have, you have, yes. yes, you have harmed them. I'm sure they're all watching Fox News. Um so, to catalog the violence. <laughs> right. So one thing that you say in the clip uh, on Fox News is that this ideology, the ide ideology that I wrote about in my piece, this denial of, of biological sex is infiltrating your classroom. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So it's infiltrating my classroom to some degree. I feel like it's not uh, as serious as it is in some other places. I've talked to other professors and um, read articles about what's happening elsewhere where it's much, the situation is much worse. But I have to say, I took a year off to write my book and then I taught remotely for a year. So I haven't actually been on campus for two years, but it has been over, which I said this on Fox News, I think the last five years I have felt that students are becoming increasingly uncomfortable with terms that used to be really pretty simple um, and clear. So yeah, I think that students are sensitive to the lack of what they perceive as inclusive language. So they do push back a little bit more. A few years ago, I had a couple, I've had students complain over the years, but a very small number of complaints. Um, and for one example, a couple years, like three years ago, I was teaching about a condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia in which females, especially if untreated, are exposed to high levels of androgens in utero. And if they're untreated, they can be exposed to a lot of testosterone basically later in life. And they can develop male characteristics. They can look very male. Sometimes they identify as male. And I referred to a female as she, because I was trying to introduce the power of testosterone to my students. And I said, she experienced the effects of testosterone and developed masculine characteristics. So that was, I think, the first time that's, that I really became aware that uh, it's dangerous for me even to call a female she in a, you know, bot purely educational 
context where I'm specifically talking about the effects of androgens on females and what they do physically. This was not anything about, you know, in a social context or how we should address people, whether we should use their preferred pronouns. Um, So the student in my classroom complained uh, to me in an anonymous email that I had misgendered, uh, I had maliciously misgendered the uh, subject of a study that I was talking about. And they said maliciously misgendered and had done them uh, violence. So you maliciously misgendered a person in a study who was presumably not in your classroom? Yeah. This was someone in a study who was a female who had developed male characteristics like body hair and increased muscle mass and looked very masculine. I was trying to talk about the effects of testosterone on this person's body. I had no idea how they identified. And I don't think the student had any idea how they identified. But if I had, if I had called this person a he, that my point would have been completely lost, that this is the effect of testosterone on a female body. Maybe in a case like that, you should just go with it. <laughs> it's, all, it's, it's interesting how this sort of – it sometimes cycles back to a certain essentialism where the student was like, well, this person has a lot of body hair. They must be a he, which is sort of the opposite of the point here. Right. Well, I guess they thought he he might identify as a he and – they assumed that he identified as a he, yeah, and so I was misgendering him. But I, sorry, her. <laughs> wow, it gets confusing yeah. very uh, okay. quickly. <laughs> that was malicious. <laughs> I know. So, what was uh, the result of that complaint? So this, I think this probably was about four or five years ago. I forwarded the email to our Title IX office. And at that point, they were super supportive. They told me to do whatever I wanted to do in the classroom. I think that part of that has to do with the fact that I've been teaching at Harvard for a long time. I have a really good teaching reputation. Um, I don't know if it would what would happen if that were to happen in my class now. I haven't had any incidents. I just taught the same material uh, this year on COVID, during COVID, you know, I taught remotely and it went really well. Students, but students do come in with certain preconceptions. They want me to use certain language, but we've been able to talk about it in the classroom and have discussions and listen and disagree. And I know that some people are offended sometimes, and I think that's perfectly fine. I was offended too when I learned about some disturbing aspects of reality, but that's part of learning in college and beyond. Before we get into sort of what what the immediate aftermath of your Fox appearance, um, when I listened to you on Joe Rogan, I thought it was interesting to hear you talk about your own trajectory on this because- yeah. For for a while you had basically you said you had repeated the idea that sex is a spectrum rather than, you know, roughly a binary and that that really is the core of a lot of this, right? Yes, it is. And I understand I really get the impetus to want to believe that sex is on a spectrum or that there are more than two sexes. So I had always just taught that sex is binary. I didn't make a big deal out of it. I didn't say why it is or how it works or that it's based on gametes. There was just the presumption that there were that there were two sexes. And then there was a period where I felt some sort of pressure and I gave into it without really thinking the issue through carefully because in my view, yeah, sex is on a spectrum because there are so many different combinations of characteristics that do vary with sex. Like you can be male and have something that looks like a vagina. You can be female and have something that looks like a penis. You know, and that person I just talked about in the study was a female, but looked a lot like a male and had male characteristics. So in, I think for a couple years, I did teach that well, look at all these different combinations. Look at how sex varies. You know, there aren't just two forms. There are all these different forms. And so sex is on a spectrum. And my students like that. And I felt good being able to say that to my students. I felt like I really did. I didn't process it, you know, so explicitly at the time, but I think I felt like a better person saying that sex was on a spectrum because it seems to make room for everybody. And it just, and now I realize that that's, totally incorrect and it's confused. And of course, sex isn't on a spectrum, but the traits that vary with sex 
can be on a spectrum, you know, sex identity or what kind of genitalia you have, even your sex chromosomes. What makes it not so? So the and I don't want to get too deep in this, but I, I this argument yes. is so persistent, and I see so many different versions of it. Someone who says sex is on a spectrum will say, "Well, there's uh, XY people with female characteristics. There's XX people with male characteristics. There are all these disorders of sexual development." How does that not add up to sex being a spectrum? So there people with DSDs have all kinds of differences, but are they neither male nor female? Most of them would not agree that that's the case. So those people are clearly male or female, but with some differences that might make them look like a di- the opposite sex, or maybe you can't really tell from looking at them if they're male or female. But sex being on a stre- spectrum would mean that sex is something like the range of colors that we have in the environment, that there's just an infinite number of sexes. Well, how would that work reproductively? It just, it doesn't make sense and there's no evidence for it. But the spe- the thing that's confusing about the spectrum is that there is a spectrum of gender expressions. There is a spectrum of like penis sizes. There is a spectrum of hormone levels, even of chromosomes. You have, can have a lot of variation in chromosomes to some extent, you know, even in people who are clearly male or female. So the sex is really about gametes, big ones or little ones. There's no intermediate gamete. There's no spectrum of gametes. It's about reproduction and you know, male mammals make sperm, little gametes, and female mammies, mammals make eggs, big gametes. We we can we can wrap up this stuff because I, I would recommend the the Rogan interview where you go more into it. But but tell me if you think this is right. What what seems to happen is that people arguing against sex being a binary. When I hear their explanations, it sounds more like they're saying males shouldn't be forced into certain roles or males shouldn't be right. forced to dress certain ways. I think people, maybe their minds slip away from just strict biology to this other more cultural stuff. Do you think that's what's going on? I think that's a huge part of it, that if we allow biologic, if we say the biological sex is on a spectrum, then we're opening up opportunities for what you just said. Well, that means that male can be anything, you know, in terms of expression. But of course you can be, you can wear a dress if you're male. You know, you can be, there's so many different ways to be male, but it doesn't change the kind of gametes that you're designed to make. Jesse's a great example for the, of this. For one thing, I mean, his male expression is historically <laughs> very feminine. So, but Carol, uh, uh, just to like vastly simplify uh, what you're saying here, is it w- would it be correct to say the human body is going to produce either large gametes or small gametes? If, you, if your body produces large gametes, you are female. If your body produces small gametes, you are male. And so it's even less about chromosomes or or physical form than just the size of the gametes that your body produces. That's correct. I just I know you want to simplify, but I just have to say two things. So the chromosome thing, it is possible for an XX person to get the gene basically off of the Y chromosome that develops testes, which would ultimately be the plan for sperm. So even an XX person could be male. And then if you delete that or nature deletes the gene on the Y chromosome that gives a body testes, that person can develop ovaries, even with XY chromosomes, and have the body plan for the gametes. So it's not the actual production of gametes, like my, okay, I'm 55. I don't even know if I'm actually producing eggs anymore. It doesn't make me any less female, and my son is 12. I don't know exactly what's going on in his balls right now, but uh, you know, he's, uh, he's male and I, yeah, don't know about the whole gamete situation down there. So, um, that's the point. It's kind of the body plan for the gamete. That's pretty unprofessional for you to arrive unprepared to talk about your son's balls, to be honest. <laughs> we can talk about my son's balls anytime. Uh, poor Moose. <laughs> he has a very large set. Okay. So you go on Fox News, you express this opinion. I will say, uh, you were very clear early on in the interview. You didn't write the piece. Uh, but you, you, you know, you had some expertise in some of the relevant areas. What's the response you get after going on Fox News? Okay. So I work in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. And I'm a, basically a permanent lecturer in that department. I also co-direct the undergraduate program. And so I have my main role is working with undergraduates. A graduate student in the department, so I tweeted out, I proudly (laughs) tweeted out the link to the 
Fox program on Twitter. And I said, hey, I, you know, appeared on Fox. Check it out. Something, I forget what my exact tweet is. <laughs> I appeared on Fox. I don't like trans people. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's how it came across to uh, a couple of people. So a grad student in my department who is, in fact, the director of our uh, diversity and inclusion tax uh, task force, which is a kind of relatively informal task force within the department. She's not an official of the college. Uh, however, she tweeted out my the link to the Fox program in which I, yeah, said there are two sexes and they're based in the, you know, the body is what determines your sex and it's your gametes. Um, she tweeted that link out and said that she was, I don't want to get the words wrong now, but I think it was appalled and frustrated. Uh, if you don't mind, Carol, I can just read the full tweet storm without mentioning her name if that works for you. Great. And I just want to say I have no ill will against her. I do. Uh, yes. I don't. I think Katie is, is <laughs> so. orchestrating a pylon and I won't be a part of it. <laughs> okay. As the director of the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force for my department at Harvard Human Evolutionary Biology, I am appalled and frustrated by the transphobic and harmful remarks made by a member of my department in this interview with Fox and Friends. Let's be clear. If you respect diverse gender identities and aim to use correct pronouns, then you would know that people with diverse genders slash sexes can be pregnant, including trans men, intersex people, and gender nonconforming people. That isn't too hard for medical students to understand. I respect Carol as a colleague and scientist, but this dangerous language perpetuates a system of discrimination against non-cis people within the med system. It directly opposes our capital T, capital F, task force work that aims to create a safe space for scholars of all gender identities and sexes. Current HEB scholars and those considering joining us, please know there are many of us in the department who honor and celebrate everyone across outside the gender spectrum. We clearly have so much more work to do, but we are trying hard to make our department a better, safer place for all. Trans right flag, uh, sort of, what color is that? I guess like a purple, purple heart. So I assume, Carol, that before she tweeted this, she reached out to you privately, but you couldn't sort of come to an agreement? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened. We couldn't come to an agreement, and then she took to Twitter. No, that's not what happened. Um, I had no idea that she had tweeted this out, and I wasn't tagged in the tweet, and a old colleague alerted me to the fact that this tweet was up there and someone was calling my, you know, from representing the department and saying that my words were transphobic and it was, it was harming undergrads. Uh, this might not have been this person's fault, but I did from the first tweet, it sounded like she was like, I initially thought she was an administrator because she says she's right. sort of the head of this task force. Right. That's what everyone thought. As far as I can tell from the responses, that's part of the, that was a big part of the problem. She didn't just tweet as a grad student. She tweeted as a representative of the department and potentially, potentially Harvard and somebody who's representing diversity and inclusion task forces, you know, and how they operate. And, um, that's not how they normally operate. So, I mean, th this person has gotten a lot of really bad blowback. You can tell most of the response was negative, although I saw a couple, one or two other Harvard people supporting her. But what has been sort of the traditionally academia is like people duke it out in journals. There's always rivalry. There's always dysfunction. But this thing of like calling out one of the professors in your department on Twitter is fairly new. And I would imagine it makes the work environment not so fun sometimes. Yeah, it is fairly new. And but I think it's definitely increasing. Students are telling me that they appreciate that I am continuing to teach this course in this climate, because a lot of people are just unwilling to put, you know, expose themselves to this kind of response and attempts at, uh, I would say, kind of public shaming. So yeah, how did how did you you responded to this on Twitter, right? Yeah, I responded on Twitter. I don't uh, this per this graduate student isn't someone I have a you know, we don't have we've never had any kind of negative interaction or anything like that. I just I, she does a lot of the, her work outside of the department. And I don't uh, know her very well. And um, plus, I just thought I needed she tweeted this out into the Twitterverse, and I felt that I should also respond and uh, have her back up her claims on Twitter. So I retweeted the her tweet 
and said, I appreciate your concerns. Could you please let me and the Twitterverse know exactly what I said that you consider transphobic or harmful to undergrads? I think you know that I care deeply about all of my students, and I also care about science. How about a discussion? Dangerous. So that was basically the, I know, the last of what I said. Um, was, she, was she open to like a discussion? Uh, she, that's complicated. Um, w- with We eventually got in touch about having a discussion, but that kind of fell through. Can you tell us what the impact this uh, little kerfuffle has had within the department? So this went viral and people from all over the world started getting involved and very quickly it was picked up by newspapers also all over the world. Yeah, let's uh, let's read some of the let's read some of the headlines here. This is from uh, the New York Post, Harvard lecturer blasted by colleague for defending existence of biological sex. Uh, Daily Mail, Harvard evolutionary biology professor blasted by diversity chief for dismissing term pregnant people. Um, There's more like that, but that's sort of the gist of it. Mostly conservative outlets or tabloids um, making this a story. Yeah. And I should say, I I never said anything about pregnant people. I don't even feel... I don't love that term, uh, but I would be open to having conversations about why that might be appropriate in you know certain circumstances. Male and female is what I'm really hung up on. Those are terms I will continue to defend, but I never even uttered the term pregnant people myself. Okay, so let's pause here. So you, despite all of this pressure to use terms like X, Y, or this, these various other euphemisms for male and female that ultimately still mean male and female, you refuse. Why yes. is that? Uh, because there's nothing wrong with the terms male and female. They're clear. <laughs> Everybody knows what they mean. And I'm not a person who thinks that it's a good idea to change scientific language or the way that you teach science, how you produce science, how you interpret science in response to social pressure, especially public shaming. That is not how we should, that is not the basis for a functional society or a liberal democracy. And it pisses me off, bottom line. I'm not going to be bullied into using perfectly adequate scientific terms. I am open to discussions about using uh, more inclusive language when it doesn't sacrifice uh, scientific clarity. I'm you know, very interested in doing what I can to make life easier for people who are facing challenges because of their you know, minority status or their differences. But just pressuring someone and bullying them into using different language is not the right way to go. And male and female are excellent terms. There's nothing wrong with those terms. Yeah. Something that happened after the piece that I wrote for Barry came out, I started to get messages from other medical students and, and people working in medicine who have observed this same thing. And I talked to a student um, at, a, at a, a, a top medical school who, who told me, she said, you know, my mom's an immigrant. And if my mom goes to the doctor and the doctor is using all of these euphemisms, she already has a hard time understanding what her doctor is saying. And if her doctor starts using all these euphemisms in some sort of misguided effort to not offend people who will not probably be in the room at that moment, um, you know, it just it makes it harder for her, her mom to, yeah. to even just establish trust with these doctors. And it does feel like this is like a like like an elite, like a top down sort of yes. mandate rather than this this sort of I and, don't know yeah and the word man in mandate is also an important part of this because I feel like there's some sexism going on here oh, because sure. these terms apply to women. Do we yeah. say ejaculators? And no, penis people. If no. we start using those, I mean, terms, I do I think- <laughs> most most episodes, but that's a separate issue. Anyway, I mean, it's ridiculous. Ejaculators is that it's just dehumanizing. We're not yeah. just made up of these individual parts. We're not identified by our individual parts. And I, you know, there are discussions to be had about language, but I don't, when it comes to just basic biological concepts and terms that describe them perfectly clearly, yeah, I, I'm really not open. I, I'll listen, you know, but I um, have no problem defending the use of male and female. Okay. So let's go back to what happened after uh, the media picked up picked up these tweets. Yeah. So first of all, it went really, it went super viral on Twitter. And I did not have a particularly big following on Twitter. I think I didn't even have, you know, 3000 followers. Um, And that just 
has more than doubled and it's just going up and up. And I was just getting, you know, notifications all over the place. And a lot of people are used to that. I was not used to that. And everybody started talking about it. Most people seemed supportive of my point of view. It seemed like people were coming out of the woodwork to thank me for defending scientific terms and the use of language that they're comfortable with. Um, so that was a good part of all this. I got emails from people all over the world saying the same types of things. The bad part of this is that um, it's very challenging for my own department. This happened within the same department. So it's not like I was contacted and someone said, I want to talk to you about this, or even that our chair was contacted um, with someone saying, I have a problem with you know what one of the faculty said on um, Fox News. Instead, it was just all carried out via Twitter in the name of the department. So everybody's just spending their time now kind of dealing with the aftermath. So this just went very, very public. And now we have to deal with it internally. And, you know, I'm feeling like I have to defend myself. Uh, although, you know, no one is making me do that. But I do feel I'm everything that I every word that I said is being scrutinized. People are, I think, examining my book to see if I said anything transphobic in there. People are probably, you know, I don't know what they're saying. It's unnerving to know that people you've worked with for many years are trying to I, I think that they support me. Um, I hope they do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's just taking up everyone's time. It's just a big, complicated issue now. And again, I have no will. I, Ill will, I have to say, towards the person who did this. She's a lot younger than I am. I made mistakes when I was that age. I think that, that this was a mistake. I hope she realizes that it was a mistake. I'm not sure. But, you know, that's can be really difficult. I I don't know where she's coming from or what shaped her decision to do this. You know, I'd like to understand more about that, I guess. Um, so I don't, uh, people make mistakes, especially young people when they're trying to figure out how to do the right thing. And I think she thinks she's doing the right thing. I, I've reported on some instances where like these sorts of Twitter campaigns quickly lead to official complaints and people trying to weaponize you know, Title IX or other internal systems um, meant to protect people against sort of uh, figures they don't like. Ha has that happened here? Are you worried about that? Um, no, because I the, I think the concern is that she represented herself as an official of the department, and she really wasn't in a position to do that. And this is just not how DEI is supposed to work. So I'm not, no, I, I don't, think there would be such a complaint. It's possible. But it, what it, what could happen, so there's going to be an article in the Harvard Crimson about this. What could happen is that I am perceived now by students as transphobic, or they might now look on what I said. They probably would never have, most of them never have seen the Fox News thing. But now they might look at that as harmful to their peers. You know, they might be allies and they might perceive that as potentially harmful. And that's, difficult. I care, you know, I've devoted my entire professional, almost my entire professional life to working with undergrads because I, I love them and I love teaching. Yeah. I mean, she, uh, the student definitely got dogpiled and I'm sure it was made worse when, um, when the media picks it up. And, and so there's that thing where it's like, you know, she started this, this is really like, but I, it's also hard not to have sympathy for her because right. even though she did this stupid thing like she's like do the the consequences do, does the punishment fit the crime right um so do you have any sort of conflicted feelings about that and about how uh how this is affecting her i definitely have conflicted feelings but first of all can i ask you about this retweet thing so sure she and there's another ex-grad student who's heavily involved in this also uh, who was also very critical of me and what I said and the department. And uh, she said it was something like absolutely awful that I retweeted the original tweet and that I, no, and implied, and the, the narrative has been that I am responsible for <laughs> everything that has happened to the original Twitter. This is what always happens. Somebody does something, you defend yourself, and then they cry harassment. It's like a light online version of that concept from domestic abuse, Darvo, where like the male will do something, the woman oh, will respond, right. and then it's the woman's fault. I, it's frankly, it's fucking ridiculous because the the assumption is she not only in 
publicly called you transphobic. She represented herself as as holding this position. Then you respond just to defend yourself and say, hey, can we have a conversation to paint you as the person who did something wrong is is fucking ridiculous. Supposedly what I did wrong was the retweet. And I retweeted because I wasn't even tagged in the original tweet. And this was already out in the Twitterverse. And I thought people need to see this is exactly what I said on Fox News, which is people are backing away from terms like male and female because they are scared that they're going to be publicly shamed for doing so. And one of the ways that people are publicly shamed is just this accusation of transphobia. And so I did want to illustrate that, look, I said there's two sexes and now I'm transphobic. And she proved your point. Yeah. Well, she did. But was I wrong to retweet because she's younger than I am. She was a grad student. I, I, this is probably one of the only areas in any aspect of life where I can give you advice, where I have more experience than you. So <laughs> the first time the first time you encounter this, it's an attempt to gaslight you and to make you think you did something wrong. I, I maybe I don't know if gaslighting is the right term, but it feels that way because I, I it's it's crazy. It is this assumption that they can say whatever they want about you and they can talk shit about you and they can launch. She did a whole tweet storm about how you're transphobic and how you're causing harm to the kids you've dedicated your life in part to helping. To then say that you have to follow a very specific set of ever-changing rules before you can respond publicly to public allegations is completely insane and it's a way of of derailing the conversation away from the merits and toward ubiquitous accusations that anyone who disagrees with the good guys is a harasser. So I I don't want this woman to get harassed, and I'm sure she has, because that's what happens when she you, has. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens. That's horrible. That doesn't mean it's your fault or that she was right to do do the initial thing. There's also this infantilization of grad students. Like uh like she's just a Harvard grad student. <laughs> right. Come on. She's a Harvard grad student. She's a grown up. Yeah. So I mean, it is interesting. So I have since learned that in this kind of scenario, exact what you just said really does happen where the person who made the initial accusation, because of the response to that accusation, can become the victim. And it is easy to kind of fall into then feeling like the aggressor. You know, it, it is easy for me to feel... Bad, um, because I retweeted, but but then I don't know what else I was supposed to do, and I don't think I'm responsible for everything that happened. Um, But it does it doesn't feel good. I don't want people to publicly lash out at other people, you know, for using accurate language, for you know, arguing for something in good faith. Um, so in a way, you know, I'm happy that this is getting aired out and addressed, but just personally, I do feel bad for her. It's a hard way to learn a lesson, I guess, if there was a lesson that was learned. The other thing I think to keep in mind is that I'm not aware of specific polling on this, but I think it's safe to say language like uterus haver and birthing person is incredibly (laughs) unpopular. And I think if you make this like a public discussion, I I think they know they will lose. So I think part of the tactic here is to talk about anything but the thing itself. It's it, you're doing harm, you're doing violence, you're uh, harassing her. So I think that's right. part of the strategy here. I could be wrong. Right. No, that's exactly what happened because when I asked exactly what did I say that was transphobic or harmful, I did not get a, res- a response that made sense to me. There was nothing about what I actually said. It was just sort of like you were on a program that is, ha- you know, the audience is transphobic and the audience has come after me. And yeah, so it wasn't really about my words. What has this been like for you? Well, uh, I am, I did write a book, you know, where I, that I thought there might be some, you know, some people would have problems with some of what I said, but I hoped that they would then engage with the substance of what I said instead of you know, name calling. Um, but I thought that that might happen. However, when it does happen, it's kind of not, it's hard to really know what it feels like. I, I have already lost, I think, not close friends, but people, friend, some friends who, you know, publicly supported this student. Um, and I don't understand how you could support someone kind of <sighs> behaving in that particular way. And that, so that's hard. Um, but it's just been a roller coaster and it's yeah it's hard to know that you're being so publicly scrutinized that 
the worst part is thinking that students might think that I'm transphobic. The students who don't know me, the students who know me and have taken my class or anybody pretty much has heard me on any podcast knows how I feel about these issues. But that's kind of heartbreaking. Um, and it's just been super emotional. Katie, you know, I've been bawling my eyes out and uh, I've had a, you know, it's up one day down the next. Um, and I guess it'll blow over and I think I'll have some new friends and maybe we'll have weeded out some people who I thought were friends. Um, and that's a, that's tough, but I've, this is nothing compared to what so many other people have gone through who are really, you know, losing for a lot of friends, re- receiving death threats, their books are banned because they're supposedly so transphobic. I just think that that is an insult that needs to stop. It's people need to be specific about people's arguments, you know, the content of their arguments, this insulting thing just doesn't get, you know, move us forward. Um, and it, yeah, it's personally, it's difficult and super time consuming. Well, and you're also, you're not tenured. So do you have concerns right. about your future at Harvard? Yeah. I mean, the thing about my situation is that I do have a long record of, you know, being a really good, strong teacher and everyone knows how much I care about the undergrads. Like I'm just everybody in my department and all the undergrads I've been close with know that. Um, so I have that to help me. And I know that I'm really important to have been important to the department and the undergrad program for a long time, but I do have concerns. I don't know where this is going to go. I don't, I'm not comfortable going back to the office right now. I know everyone's talking about this situation and I'm not part of those conversations. Um, so I am a little bit nervous, but I did go into even just writing this book and I went on Fox News to say that stuff, knowing that ultimately I could be jeopardizing my career. But I'm at a point in my life where that's a risk I have to take. I hope that's, I hope I'm completely wrong about that. Um, and we'll just see how this plays out. It's interesting to think about it institutionally. From the point of view of Harvard administrators, they are in closer proximity than any of us to the only this tiny loud subset of people who who hates, you know, pregnant women and, and words like that. But at a certain point, if you keep caving to this, you're going to have an institution that just bears no similarity to the real world and, and exists according to a whole separate set set of rules, which I, I don't right. think is really sustainable in the long run. No, I agree with you. And I'm trying to do everything I can to prevent that from happening. And that is what is happening, obviously, in journalism and academia all over the place. And I'm trying to push back on that. And I just want to, I have to say, I am, I do feel supported by the powers that be in my department, but they only, you know, they have to walk a tightrope here. Um, the, yes, for various reasons, they have to walk a tightrope and, um, so it's not, to, you know, my future is not totally within their hands, but they they are largely supportive, but they're in a very difficult position because they have to be supportive of the grad student and her concerns also, and the concerns of people who support her. You know, I've been thinking about you guys and what you both might have gone through that got you to where you are now. And I'm totally serious. I know everybody jokes about it, but I'm sure you went through really difficult personal travails and probably lost some friends because you wrote the wrong article. Jesse didn't have any friends in the first place. <laughs> I knew you weren't going to let this <laughs> yeah, go. I, ha- I have friends for the first time in my life. Are you guys willing to say anything about what it was like for you? Sure. It's been, so I'm four years out from my first major uh, dog pile after with a piece on detransitioners for the strangers. And so at this point, I've sort of lost touch with how wrenching it was on an emotional level. But I was, I stayed in bed for like three days. I was just super, super scared and depressed and full of regret. And what really helped me was talking to people like uh, like Jesse and Alice Drager and Dan Savage yeah. and people who 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 were familiar with the work and who uh, and who who could sort of coach me through this. Although Jesse wasn't that much help, um, but so leaning on other people who who'd been there was really helpful. And at this point, four years out, I can say honestly that that this was one of the best thing that's, things that's ever happened to me because it really shifted. It shifted the way that I think. It made me more empathetic. It made me more skeptical. I think it made me, frankly, a better person and a better journalist. Um, but I also, like, 
I don't have very many friends. <laughs> and like, and part of that, I think, is a direct, direct result, not of the piece that I wrote, but of the response to the piece that I wrote. And because once you get the stink of transphobe on you, it's impossible to wash off. What about you, Jesse? No, I mean, I've talked about this. My situation was different. It, it absolutely sucked. And what disturbed me the most was, and I've talked about this, is, um, I mean, first of all, because I'm, I'm not gay, at least not yet. I don't. <laughs> There's still time. There's <laughs> still time. You never know. Um, I didn't, I didn't like have a full community of in me. My friends are normally Obama liberals. They, they rib me that I'm seen as a transphobe now, but they know it's ridiculous. I have one friend raised concerns in that shitty way these people sometimes do. Just she was worried about my trajectory. I, I immediately said, let's talk about it. Let's have a phone chat. I never heard back from her. This is someone I hadn't seen in years. Anyway, then one other friend, not coincidentally at the same time, uh, he was going through to me a pretty self-evident, uh, mental health crisis visible to all on Twitter. He texted me and he actually disowned me because of Katie, uh, because of something Katie had said. Did this, wait, this really happened? Like what did, he disowned you because of something that I said. Well, he, he was like just going off at you on text. And I was like, what do you want me to do? Do, I'm not going to like, I basically, I I don't remember even what the comment was. I wasn't like, just like, what do do you want me to do? Do you want me to tell you I I hate, like, no, she's my co-host. She's great. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then he basically, yeah, disowned me. Although there were other mental health things there. But the point is, I've gotten it way less bad than Katie. The one exception being this like incredibly fucked up thing that even like big name journalists participated in of trying to contrive some sort of like me too thing. I mean, this goes back to Nicole Cliff, a staffer at Slate saying that I'm out here emailing trans women trying to like get a date with them which is so fucked up and so similar to like the michael bailey all the stuff from drager it's like the same playbook and these people never ever fucking apologize and the reason i responded um so viscerally to what you said about am i the bad guy is after i pointed out that nicole cliff is publicly spreading these rumors it, it then became the narrative that i had harassed her off twitter which, when you think about that, one person says of another person, this person is engaged in incredibly shady behavior that could get them fired from journalism. And the other person says, where's your evidence? Why would you say that? I, like, who's the bad guy there? I just find it so morally deranged how this stuff goes down online. And I've said it before. And I should, I want to get over it, but I also want to, I'm sorry, I want to re- repeat these people's names so they fucking apologize. I know that's petty of me. So Nicole Cliff said that you were obsessed with trans women. And then there's a lot of people in her responses asking for evidence. And then she leaves Twitter. And so the narrative becomes Jesse Single, you know, drove Nicole Cliff off Twitter. And she's obviously much more popular and much more beloved than you are. I combed through her tweets, combed through them, looking – or not through her tweets, through the responses, looking for any evidence of harassment. I looked at all the quote tweets. I looked at all the retweets. I searched her name with a bunch of bad words. <laughs> like you're just sitting there, Nicole Cliff, bitch. Nicole Cliff. <laughs> yeah, I did that. I did. I literally did that. I was just looking for any sort of evidence that anybody was harassing her, and it did not exist. Of course it did. Because these people – like I don't think she specifically – Specifically said she was harassed, but her like ally. Anyway, I, you know what? I'm still fucking resentful over that because having someone in your profession accuse you of something like that with no evidence is fucking outrageous. And sorry, I, it's hard to get over something like that because there's also like I don't know. Anyway, all of it. I didn't mean to derail us. We've we've dealt with separate kinds of shit. Did you ha- did you lose any friends for the work that you've done or articles that you've written? Did you go through any of that online? Yeah, like I thought the bunch of like dumb Brooklyn leftists who I would like joke around with no longer like I me. That, that not does, real friends. No. Not like no, no. Katie. Other than the, not like Katie. I had a real friend, after Jesse's piece came out, I had a real friend message me and uh, basically say like, what the fuck? Why are you defending this guy? And I, I like wrote up a whole thing back about how, you know, I think that, <laughs> I think that he understands the data better than you do. You're a casual observer here. And then she just blocked me. And this is a, this is a real friend. This is someone I actually knew in real life. One thing I've noticed among a lot of these guys is when you suggest that there could just be a conversation here and that there could be mere disagreement, it's like hold what's the analogy? It's like holding up garlic to Dracula or something. They're they're so put off by the idea that this isn't actually they're morally good and I'm morally evil. In some cases, the actual disagreement is very narrow. And they're just they've they've uh, maybe just from being on Twitter too much, they've conditioned themselves to think that anyone who says we should discuss this is like a Nazi, which is a very 
unhealthy way to participate in public intellectual life. Well, it's just shaming you for not having the right opinion. You know, the discussion yeah. isn't necessary. If you have the wrong opinion and you're a bad person, then then why have a discussion? Because if you're going to have a discussion, it means that you kind of respect the other person's opinion, even if you disagree and you maybe respect them as a human being. Yeah. <sighs> Carol, before we wrap this up, I, I, I have a, a sort of unrelated question for you. Yes. So last night I was watching this show. It's on HBO called 100 Foot Wave, and it's about these surfers who surf 100 feet waves. <laughs> and in the in the show, you can see there's a, only a handful of people who do this, you know, in the world, and none of them are women. And in the show, you can see sort of like the girlfriends and the wives are, are back home, uh, you know, or they're, they're the, the support crew, but they're not doing this thing. And I know that there are probably a, a very, very minute number of, of women who do, who do things like this. And I was thinking yes, about this, yes, like, you know, and so, yeah, yeah. so I, I was a, a whitewater kayaker growing up. My brother is, I, I don't paddle anymore. My, my brother, I have a brother who's, who's like very, very extreme, very good at this sport, but it's dangerous. It's a really dangerous sport. And the thing that, that made him really good and made me sort of I was, I was top, top of the sport for my age range as a girl because I was the only ones doing it. But the thing right. that I really lacked was just the sort of, I have an aversion to risk that he doesn't have. Yeah. Well, obviously physical risk because I don't think you have an aversion to right. all kinds. And I was watching the show last night and I was just thinking like, I was, you know, I, I never want to be a man, but I was thinking like, you know, I wish that I had a little bit more testosterone that would right. make me one of these people. And I'm sure that there are cultural influences there, but I'm also sure yes. that there are biological influences there. Yeah. And so here's my question for you. Is biology destiny? No. All right, wrap it up. Okay, this has been Blotch Reported. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, I, it's not destiny, because, but it does make, it does, higher testosterone does seem to predispose males to taking more physical risks. And you can trace that to the need for males to compete physically for mates. And that's adaptive for them. And we males seem to be, so that's one of the actions of testosterone. And so they're in all kinds of situations more willing to risk their own physical health, including their lives. Like men are much more likely to save the lives of people, to risk their own lives, to save the lives of people they don't know. Uh, and women are, you know, much, much less likely they would risk their lives for their kids, for instance. So it's not destiny, but it definitely, I think, influences that trait in men. Do you ever want to have a, take a little tea patch or a, do a little micro dose? I want to take a lot of tea. Yeah. I'm dying to take male levels of tea. I mean, all, I've spent so much time thinking about what it's like to be a man and trying to understand men and what is the role of biology and what is the role of culture. And I want to get in there. You know, I want to take that much tea, but I don't want facial and chest right. hair right. and more acne. And I want, I like having muscles, but I also want to retain the little boobs that I have. And um, yeah, maybe I could just jack it up a little bit and see what happens. Um, yeah, kind of interested in that. I've thought I've thought about it. I mean, a little a little micro dose just to like uh, make it so I can do a couple more push ups. Jesse should probably do that too. <laughs> well, I was gonna I was I was gonna ask Carol about. The, I have a question along those same lines, which is um, I'm much too sort of physically and socially dominant, and I have like these giant muscles, <laughs> and women are too attracted to me. Should I take some estrogen? Definitely. If you want to tone all that down, your boobs are big enough, Jesse. <laughs> Wait, do you have little boobs? <laughs> Jesse, big ones, do, big ones. Do you have gynec a little gynecomastia? <laughs> I sh given my diet, I should, but I haven't yet. I think like ten years from now, I definitely will if I continue this up. <laughs> okay, because you know we haven't met in person yet. I know. Yeah. Anyway, he's gonna go get fitted at Victoria's Secret. This got this got this is this this podcast just became a Title Nine violation. <laughs> All right. Anything else? No, Carol. Thank you very much for coming on, and I hope this goes smoothly. And I hope. Um, I don't know if this podcast plays a small part in keeping things on the rail at Harvard because it's insane to me that you have to worry even the tiniest bit about getting in trouble for this shit. Thank you. And speaking of keeping things on the rail, can I say the name of my book? Oh, Absolutely not. <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> it's called T. It is the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. All right. We will post a link to this in the show notes. Carol, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's a thrill. This is my favorite podcast. Thank you. Oh, mine too. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I was um, I was very glad Carol came on to talk to us, and we'll see what happens. I mean, nothing would surprise me at this point with regard to how these institutions deal with student complaints, right? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the Patreon. There is this sort of – and I, you know, not to be too hyperbolic about it, but there is this sort of like Maoist tone where you have these young people basically – terrifying the adults, the grown-ups, the people, the authority figures, subverting the hierarchy. And maybe in some ways you can order, argue that that's a good thing. Um, and, uh, and claiming power for themselves, using public shaming to do it. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be a recipe. And uh, we'll see what Harvard does about this because it seems like it's probably, uh, I don't know, just controversy is not going to go away overnight for sure. Yeah, I'm. I Carol strikes me as probably a really awesome teacher, and the fact that she's not tenured or not tenure track is a is a bit concerning. So I really hope hope the best for her. Yeah, I mean the the damage it would do to Harvard if if they don't line up with her on this would be uh, profound. So so we'll see. Uh, all right, so housekeeping you can always reach us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com we have a vibrant thriving subreddit it's like the freaking castro district in the 70s reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported it's like walmart on black friday it's like walmart on black freaking friday uh what else oh merch barpod.org we have a subscription service at patreon.com slash blocked and reported five dollars a month or more you get three extra episodes a month you can imagine how incredible that is katie anything else personals if you're a patron you can send us meaning me a message uh with a personal ad we will read it on the podcast we're hoping to eventually get through all of them episode by episode and then if you like what you hear send an email to barpodpersonals at gmail.com right right so this is a perk for our patrons you can find love on the podcast Yes. Yeah. And this is a uh, legal guarantee that you will marry someone from this. Yes, it is binding. All right. Should we read a couple? 34-year-old hyper-capitalist, free speech zealot, tech bro living in Houston thinks he could get along just fine with the kind of liberal woman who listens to Barpod. Into Aggie football, I guess that's Texas A&M, Renfest, and long talks on the beach, Houston, Texas. Interesting. I would imagine that the the diagram, the Venn diagram of people who are into Texas football and Ren Fairs is uh, pretty small. It's a big, weird country, Katie. We'll see. Next up, must tolerate dogs. 37-year-old straight female seeks men with real estate or at least half a brain. Author of an obscure novel. Interests include baseball, hockey, historic preservation, and Airedales. Located in Minneapolis, but willing to relocate, especially if you live in, in Savannah or New Orleans. What are Airedales? They're dogs. They're very pretty dogs. With uh, they're like They kind of look like doodles. Oh, okay. Airedales. I learned something new every day. Rapid onset tender euphoria. <laughs> Ooh, good one. 28-year-old non-podcaster. I like that they have to indicate that. Jewish man in the Los Angeles area seeks non-podcaster woman for long-term relationship. That's racist. Things I'm into. A balanced lifestyle, effective altruism, and casual forehead kisses. (laughs) Not formal forehead kisses. I only ask that you do not dress up as a robot for Halloween. I'm an engineer, and my culture is not your costume. (laughs) I'm somewhat vanilla, but I'm open to trying whatever your kink is, as long as it's not podcasting. That's just gross. All right. Next up, Alex Jones fanatic seeks Goop subscription holder. (laughs) 32-year-old male, only somewhat douchey, Ivy Ivy League educated, independently wealthy, land and large large dog-owning Brooklynite seeks attractive women with good taste, but not so good that she wouldn't put an egg in her vagina. Firm understanding that all frogs are now gay a plus. British PhD, I can say the D word if I'm reading a personal ad, right? I give you permission. Why don't you say it when we get to that part and then I'll, I'll we'll just continue. Okay. Briti- British PhD. Dyke. Seeks intellectually intense non-queer for cheap beers and being judgmental. Likes controversial hot takes, nonfiction, fresh fruit. Dislikes shyness, astrology, makeup, adults who are too into Disney. Dude, this is this might be my girl. I know. It's pretty pretty promising. All right. This one, matchmaker, matchmaker, find me a turf. I'm a straight Jewish cisgender male, for which I apologize, obviously. I'm 5'10", fit, and live in the Los Angeles area. When I'm not reckoning with my whiteness, I enjoy reading, hiking, biking, camping, and backpacking, disc golf, swimming, cooking, and finding new restaurants. Sometimes I also like to smoke weed and watch movies or TV. I'm seeking a funny, smart, opinionated woman with a classically liberal or moderately conservative, I guess, disposition. Are there any still out there? All right, let's do two more. 
mid-30-something butch lesbian seeks femme-leaning partner in crime. Expat split between home and abroad, totally worth it. Tell me about yourself. Vancouver and London, two very, very fine cities. I'm a 26-year-old woman who lives and works in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, and a single mother to young children. To a young child, excuse me. I enjoy literature, weightlifting, baking, and heterodox podcasts. I'm looking for an intelligent man who's cool with dating a left-wing religious single mom. P.S. Don't worry. I don't let my son listen to the pod. Good good choice. Very good choice. Uh, all right. Well, if you liked any of those, email katie at barpodpersonals at gmail.com. Anything else, Katie? I think that's it. I think we're really making some love connections here, just as long as I remember to check the uh, check the inbox. <laughs> these poor people are just... All these people are putting their other dating lives on hold, waiting <laughs> for you to get back to them or connect them, and then just skeletons in chairs. I will do it right after this, uh, right after we finish recording this. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, quote retweeting a grad student should be a federal crime. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember... Don't assume that just because I have a Star of David tattoo on my head, a place in Israel, and I go to temple every week, that means I'm Jewish. Jewish.